0: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today we are fortunate to be speaking with Juno Diaz, a writer The New Yorker calls one of the top 20 writers for the 21st century. He's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wao, a creative writing professor at MIT, the fiction editor at the Boston Review, and a founding member of Voices of Our Nation's Arts Writing Workshop, which focuses on writers of color. In 2010, he became the first Latino to be appointed to the board of jurors for the Pulitzer Prize, and Juno Diaz is here today to talk about his new short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her, a much anticipated work 16 years in the making. Welcome to Between the Covers, Juno
1: Diaz. Thank you. Thank you. I might also be the the second New Jerseyan uh, on the board too. So oh, no kidding. That's my other honor. Nah, probably not.
0: Well, I wanted to I wanted to actually <laughs> talk to you about a fellow New Jersey writer. So let's let's start with your your main character, you—you you have a character who has followed you through all of your fiction, named Junior. Yes, and uh, he was in Drown. He was in the in your novel, and he he centers very prominently in your new collection. And similar to another New Jersey writer, Philip Roth, who has a doppelganger, Nathan Zuckerman, you guys share some autobiographical details, you and Junior. So I'm I'm curious about what role you see Junior playing. And how and why you feel compelled to go back to him as a as a character that leads people through your stories?
1: Yeah, it's hard, 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 hard. Not it's hard to grow up in New Jersey um, and be interested in writing and not have William Carlos Williams and not have Philip Roth over you. In many ways, they cast these these awesome awesome radiances on your imaginary, and certainly, uh, you know. Um, the Zuckerman doppelganger strategy is one that's so fascinating and so productive. And Junior for me has been a character that just fascinates me because he's such a productive dumbass. He's like the kind of classic dumbass character who makes all the right mistakes to produce great, for me in my mind, what I consider great stories.
0: And having this doppelganger where you share some some facts with him, obviously, when you put Junior down on paper, he's no longer really you. But you sort of do invite that blurring of autobiography and fiction when you do that. Is that something that you you invite and, and want to happen with your readers?
1: Well, because, you know, it's so hard. It's so hard to write, bro. It's so hard to have like characters that are super fully dimensional. It's so hard to create a world that will keep you on the page when this beautiful world outside is beckoning you. And one of the ways that you get free heavy lifting From readers is by sort of blurring that line by inviting you to add an extra serving of real thinking. Like you're reading a book and you're like, "Ah, this has got to be him. This has got to be him. It's he went to college at Rutgers too. This has got to be him." And you're like doing all this work for me as a writer. And I think a lot of us writers need our readers to do a lot of work because what we're asking them is a tremendous, tremendous thing. We're asking them to sort of connect to characters that are difficult. This
0: is how You Loser is organized, not just around Junior, but specifically around this issue of infidelity. I'd like to hear you maybe describe Junior a little more. You mentioned him as a dumbass, but tell us about the struggle he's having with that and and why you chose this theme as an organizing principle to bring these stories together.
1: When you think about a character, especially when you're working a character that you want to sort of follow with more than one book, a character who in some ways is epic, by which we mean, you know, it's going to be a long life, um, you try to figure out what's, what would be kind of a, a, an interesting legacy to have. And for me, kind of a great legacy, given the history of the Dominican Republic, given the kind of masculinities I grew up in New Jersey, would be, I thought, was going to be uh, cheating, infidelity. Junior is haunted by it. His very family um, is marked by his father's infidelity. There's a story in the book uh, which is basically told from the point of view of the other woman who junior's father was living with while they he was in the Dominican Republic and the children were while he was in New Jersey the children were in the Dominican Republic and it just feels like I'm telling you and I think we all know this nothing reveals us quite like when we're misbehaving and nothing reveals us profoundly quite like when we're misbehaving in love and there's tremendous tremendous truth wisdom and insight that's kind of garnered and sort of given to us when we see people breaking other people's hearts it's terrible but it's sort of like the equivalent it's the literary equivalent of like when you know a star gets eaten by a black hole like it sheds all this great light right before the horror and i think the same thing happens when love collapses
0: well junior definitely has a lot of deficiencies and a lot to learn about how to love and it and i guess similar to nathan zuckerman here we have two characters who tend to objectify women who have trouble seeing the humanity and the people that they're trying to love. And I know with Philip Roth, he's seen some blowback uh, where people have conflated him and his character and called his work misogynistic or a product of objectification of women. And I, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about the enterprise of Following Juniors journey and how he's he's trying to love and whether you've had readers have that confusion at all with you
1: Yeah, well, I mean come on the objectification of women is one of the kind of standard axes the way our culture operates and You know when I think about certainly this isn't uniquely juniors problem Yeah, I mean this is this is something that is so generalized but yet when we see it on the page the shock of recognition, the fact that we see a a male character, we see a masculine subjectivity put on the page in what I think so honest a way, it often repels us in ways that the very presence of it in our real lives doesn't. And I guess for me, clearly, of course, I'm sort of representing characters who live in the real. I'm representing a junior who has a lot of misogynistic tendencies. I'm representing sort of what we would call a victorious masculinity, one that takes advantage of this sort of predatory vis-a-vis women. I mean, Junior is kind of a winner in the boy economy. He's a dude who gets girls, good-looking girls, smart girls, and he gets them to like him, you know. And when you're representing these kind of characters, yeah, man, there's people who read this and confuse you representing something for you approving or glorifying it. Now, this doesn't mean that a Philip Roth or a Juno Diaz or whoever's kind of doing this work isn't being sexist. I feel like I'm doing this to sort of explode certain kinds of masculinities and to sort of create a map that I thought would be useful for people who want to sort of create sort of critical strategies for dealing with. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't I'm not a sexist and I'm not being a sexist. The reader has to decide for this. But I guess I was willing to risk the blowback. I'm willing to risk all these reviews where people are like these, these characters are insufferable. These characters are unbearable, even though they're basically describing 99 percent of all men. Seems as if like, oh, it's only in this book where these guys exist. You know, And um, I'm willing to risk all of that because I think this is an important project. And even if I failed, let's say I failed. Let's say my attempts to represent these characters crosses the line and it's all just misogyny. Some of the things that I do here, another male writer will pick up perhaps and do it correctly. So I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm willing to risk it. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers. And we're talking
0: today with Juno Diaz about his new short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her. Well, Juno, I, I feel like that's actually one of the things that really fascinates me about your work. Because when I hear interviews of you and when I read things that you say, it's clear that you're a progressive, that you have feminist concerns, that you're interested in issues of race and class and gender, and yet you do take this risk. Um, I believe there is a, a moral in your in your in the journey that Juno takes, but it's very subtle, and I feel like. Um, it's pretty cool that the book isn't didactic um, and and you take the risk of actually being accused of the opposite of what I think your intentions are. And, and I'm curious if you ever have that, that uh, temptation to just put a character in there to sort of uh, download some sort of political philosophy down into the end of the story.
1: Well, then you run the risk of writing what I find, like Tolkien, very tedious allegory. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not writing allegory. I guess The part that fascinates me about literature is that it's complex enough that there's always room in any story, in any book, for someone to read with great passion the exact opposite of your intent. And I guess that it would defeat the purpose of it. I mean, I need people to dislike a book strongly, my own book, because that makes it possible for people to love it. These are not religious tracts that make universal claims on our soul. These are works of art that have a great particularity. And for a piece of work to live for generations, it's not that it requires um, a million people. It only requires a couple people to love it strongly. And I guess the only way you can get people to love a book strongly is in some ways to make it particular, to take the kind of human risks so that people recognize this for the real. Yeah, they recognize the rigors of reality in the book. But of course, it means that you're going to get a lot of slap up. So, I mean, I appreciate it. Thank you for your, you know, for your support of these kind of experiments. But for any young artist out there, these are, for me, I would argue, the only experiments worth making.
0: Uh, You mentioned earlier the story, uh, Otra Vida Otra Vez, Mm. um, the one story that's narrated from a woman in this collection. And I felt like that story was really crucial to the book cohering for me in the sense that it's it's she's the only character that really Fully has the capacity for empathy. She sees the suffering of the wife of the person she's having an affair with, and changes her actions based on imagining the pain that she might be causing. And that, but that actually, even though she's the one who successfully does that, that feels to me like that's the journey that by the end of this book, Junior is just beginning. Is is that how you see it? Is certainly
1: well? it was structured this way. Listen, and and, and again, I mean. As an artist, you, you do kind of stuff that's kooky. I need my readers to work. Now, it doesn't mean that we all do the same work. Some readers want to read beginning and end. They don't want to go further than that. Some readers read a page and they're done with the book. And that's cool, too. But you want to have enough in your book so that if somebody wants to do a lot of work on the book, they can assemble a very interesting book. And why I say this is to your question, we finished the book with you and you're writing the book you suddenly realize that you're reading. And what you realize is Junior is the one who has written the story about Yasmin. Junior is writing Otra Vida Otra Vez. This is about his father. And this is about him doing the one thing he's incapable of doing, which is incapable of imagining women. And so we see Junior as an artist doing something that he doesn't do in real life. He sympathetically imagines perhaps the woman that he's least likely to ever sympathetically imagine, the woman who shatters his family.
0: Since most of the the protagonists in in your stories are Dominican-Americans, and we've talked about this doubling between you and your protagonist, this doppelganger effect, but there's definitely a doubling going on between the United States and the Dominican Republic. Some of the characters literally have families back in the Dominican Republic and love lives going on in the United States, but everybody seems haunted by this idea of a dual life and and a counter life in a sense.
1: Can you talk more about that? Well, sure. I mean, a country that's so defined by immigration the way the Dominican Republic is, is sort of we're looking at the way Italy was defined by immigration at the turn of the 20th century. which So we get this kind of double interesting thing where, and I I try to represent it in the work. I mean, never too successfully because reality is way more complicated, but you try. And what you have is you have characters like Junior who are haunted by the Dominican Republic when they're in the U.S., But you also have characters in the Santo Domingo who are haunted by the U.S. because they're waiting for the U.S., because they're going to immigrate, because they have family over there. It's kind of, I'm telling you, it's kind of a dual haunting. It's two countries that you would never imagine how interdependent they are and how close they are and how their shadows fall on each other. And this is a great place to write literature from. It's like really, really wonderful. It's this kind of contact zone And for me, it's really, really useful. I kind of like this, because it's a metaphor, because all of us are haunted by that other world we call our past. And so by kind of having that world made literal by another country, it just kind of doubles down on this, and it's resonant.
0: The historical relationship between the Dominican Republic and the United States, even though it's really not gone into in this collection in comparison to your novel, it does feel like that shadow is cast over the stories. And I know in another interview you said the Dominican Republic is the egg that that gave birth to the American eagle. And I, I would love for you to expound on that for our listeners who maybe don't even know that there is a history between the two countries.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, again, it, it all depends on what you know and what you're thinking about when it comes to the history of the new world. I mean, in the history of the new world, everything that we call the Americas, from the top to the bottom... It all begins, it's all beta tested on the island, which is now shared by the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So what we would call this large concept of coloniality, from which comes our, the form of capitalism which we have now, which comes the race relationships we have now, whether we're talking about Brazil, the United States, gender relationships, the way gender relationships are organized. Of course, they were there before, but they get structured in a very interesting way um, during the whole colonial experience. Whether we're talking about the ways that um, families work, the way that cultures work, a lot of stuff begins in the New World in these islands that we call the Caribbean in the Antilles. And so in some ways, the United States is the final stage of this experiment, which not a final stage, but certainly it becomes the largest, sort of most powerful exemplar, of something that gets started in the Dominican Republic. Despite kind of surface cultural differences and certainly profound historical differences, the basic grammar of a place like Santo Domingo and the United States is identical. It's really identical. Both countries come out of plantation economies. Both countries come out of Indian extermination. Both countries come out of sort of settler colony, uh, colonial elites to kind of, quote-unquote, defeat the wilderness to bring civilization to it. Both countries come out of what we would call a sort of millenarian Christian impulse, the city on the hill that we're kind of like really create this new Jerusalem in this wilderness. Both countries come out of a sense that there's an economic basis for what we're doing, that, you know, we're here to sort of start over, that the old world is kind of exhausted, and then this new world will create this entire new universe. And the commonalities and the continuities are very, very strong. And so for somebody like me writing about the Dominican Republic, I can't write about the Dominican Republic without it echoing in the larger Chamber that is America. And I can't write about America without it sort of kind of transmitting back to Santo Domingo.
0: Well, that makes me curious about uh, any differences in reception that your work gets. I know that with immigrant writing, especially when somebody is writing about an immigrant group that hasn't reached the mainstream before. There's often this sentiment, at least among some people, like "Please don't air our dirty laundry oh, yeah. out in, in the world." And um, how 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 have things been received among Dominicans and Dominican Americans? Are they saying, "Hey, can you just pull this back a little bit? We're feeling a little bit too vulnerable," or "Wow, this is this is like you know really reflecting what we what we experience?"
1: Yeah, I think it's the range between that and people who say you're a complete fraud and you're maligning the culture. I think there's a wide range, you know. It's amazing how little has changed because in many ways, what cultures, what groups, what enclaves, what they really want is they kind of want cruise directors or they want head of tourism boards. Head of tourism boards are not artists. You know they're always kind of boosters but what artists do is artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds in the silences and if a culture is not used to that kind of discussion if a culture has had not had much experience with seeing an artist kind of you know do a dissection yeah of everything that they think is wrong both in their home country and their other country people get riled up and i think that's okay i mean part of what we do is because we say the things or go with places people don't really like to go. And, yeah, people get unhappy about it. But, you know, that's two, three, four generations down the line, sort of we, they people will look back and think, like, this. This maybe this was useful.
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today with Juno Diaz about his new short story collection, This Is How You Lose Her. You you mentioned silences and artists going into silences. But I also feel like in, in your work you create um, – in a very interesting way, the the presence of absences, like in a way, like in this collection, the Dominican Republic is, is it's looming, but it's not it's not in the scene itself. And similarly, it feels like the absence of uh, male mentors in this. It, it really feels the even though it's not really discussed much, it feels like it's just all over the place in this, I and mean, there's nobody there to show Junior how to be a guy.
1: I think I'm been obsessed for a long time with um, stories that have at their heart um, a big hole. I think I've always enjoyed that. I think I've always enjoyed writing about sort of characters who are only shadows or who are standing at the eaves, you know, whether it's Trujillo in The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, whether it's the father character and the dead brother in both Drown and in uh, This Is How You Lose Her. I don't know. There's something to me that has always been really kind of useful about that. I kind of like that. I mean, I sometimes joke around. I think it's like a very typical Caribbean experience because at the heart of the Caribbean experience, of course, is a crater. So much has been lost. We, there's, there's more. We're an archipelago culture. There's more missing than there is present. And, uh, and yet, as an artist, it's also kind of a fun thing. You get a lot of charge. You know, it's like Star Wars. I don't know if you watched the original Star Wars. They just mentioned the Clone Wars, and that was much more powerful than showing it. When they get around to showing it, it's really boring. But when it's just kind of this whisper in the wind, the reader can invest in it and put all sorts of things. It becomes like a, something they can play with, something they can add to. And that it, it allows me, to, I think, to, to engage the reader in that way.
0: I want to ask you something about your style I know we've talked a lot about some heavy themes around misogyny, around race and and class, but I mean one of the first things I, I experience reading your work is that it's really fun and dynamic and unexpected. And part of that's your style. It's this very interesting mixture of Spanish and English mixed together, of high brow vocabulary and references to certain literary works, but a lot of street lingo mm. at the same time. And there's a certain rhythm. Reminds me a little bit of like when you read uh, Adventures of Augie March and you get that sort of jazziness in, in Saul Bellow's work. There's a sort of like musicality to the way your work happens. What I wanted to know was, is that something that you've always had? Or was it something, you know, I went through this period when I was trying to write like Henry James and it took me all this failed time to finally stumble upon this alchemy of influences that now is what everyone associates you with.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, this is a this is a a labored, a laboriously worked over artifact. Um, I think achieving this voice has been a real, real struggle. It's been an attempt to sort of not only give Junior uh, the kind of thumbprint, the kind of original matrix of self that allows characters to live on in readers' heads long after the page is you know closed, if the book is closed. I mean, but also that allows me sort of to describe a particular nexus of uh, the American moment, where you have an American moment now, and you know, it's very much true, where English, urban English, Black English, Spanish, Spanish sort of variations, where you have code switching, where you have characters who grew up super poor who end up going to Ivy League schools. This is a reality for a lot of communities. And so the same kind of way that Melville, you know, not to to get too ridiculous, but the same way Melville was trying to catch the American moment with all the languages and characters in the Pequod. I think any of us who really are interested in writing about the United States are always trying to figure out a way to render the Pequod. And I think my particular Pequod has all of these influences because it's an attempt to capture this crazy linguistic cultural experiment we call our country
0: and And when you put together this this labored stylistic artifact, who are some of the people that you you went to as benchmarks or influences that uh, to put the different elements together in it?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of it is completely you would never imagine. you know I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. it seems ridiculous. but in my mind, it's sort of wild that I went through this way. Uh, for example, William Volman. William Volman was a huge influence on me. I'm kind of a person who didn't read much Dave Foster Wallace but read religiously and continue to be religiously, uh, Volman. I think Volman is just powerful in his just ways that he thinks and uses languages and the way that he deploys, you know, his character's talking crazy street, and yet he's in there throwing every postmodern gimmick that you can imagine. Uh, he was important sort of the musicality the lyricism of somebody like sandra cisneros and piri thomas the great memoirist the great black puerto rican memoirist who wrote down these mean streets and the way that he kind of examined sort of you know the link between certain kinds of masculinity and that kind of posturing braggadocio of boy kind of street language all of these people sort of melted in and kind of gave me ideas i mean harlan ellison I mean, Harlan Ellison is a science fiction writer famous for writing an amazing stories and for film scripts about TV shows. Won many awards, but he has some of the most diamond sharp, tough, 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 tough voices in literature, and he helped me shape me as well.
0: Well, it's interesting when you think about the cliche about the novel versus the short story. That we often think of the novel as the place where people do a ton of exuberant experimentation but it feels to me like a lot of th- what you're accomplishing in and this is how you lose her and your other short story collection drown is um an opening up of the possibilities of the short story too because you you bring out various tenses you have stories in the in the second tense but you also do a lot of leaping uh, around in time and looping forward in time which you know reminds me a little bit of some of the things that alice monroe does love but, her and, and she's amazing with time. Somehow the way she expands it, I, I know the cliche around short stories is that they're these polished, tight gems, and yours feel more like they sort of explode open in a different way. Is that is that something accidental, or did, do you feel like you you go in with a certain uh, you know
1: certain intent around what you're doing when the short story? Hell yeah, man! You want to take the short story and play with it. It invites you to experiment. It's a form that really just I just think. I think it's foul. It's foul the way that people will when you write a collection. I mean, when you write a collection, they'll be like, well, this was a nice pupa stage, and we're going to really enjoy their novel. Yet you never see when somebody writes a novel, anyone saying, well, this was a good first gesture. Now we'll see how he does or how she does on stories. There's this really perverse hierarchy that puts um, the short story at the bottom. And I think that that's deeply unfair. I've written a novel now. I feel like I've written a very successful novel in my mind. I've written a pair of successful Linkster story collections in my mind. And I think it's unfair to assume that the novel is somehow this incredibly colossal elevated form. And a short story collection is some sort of journey person's attempt to reach that sort of, you know, Apollyon Heights. And I, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. And yet... Again and again and again, my students mail me reviews for this latest book, and they underscore how many reviewers have said, this isn't too bad. This will hold us over to his next book, his next novel. And it's astonishing where I love this form. I don't think that we can completely capture human reality without the short story.
0: And and do you feel like your choice in both collections to make them connected in a way um, they're cumulative and have some novelistic qualities to them? Is part of your attempt to break down that hierarchy between the two forms?
1: And also, well, but also it's a way to just sort of, I think it's a way to make it, in my mind, of course, here's a self-serving comment, <clears throat> you know, but in my mind, it was just a better challenge for me. Yeah, if you're going to write nine completely unconnected stories, that's incredibly difficult, no question about it. But writing nine stories that you have to somehow make them all work together is a different set of challenges and that that different set of challenges for some reason rubs my imagination the right way and yes without question by bringing the bringing the book slightly closer in a midway point between the standard story anthology and the novel i actually think that it shows its strength vis-a-vis the novel. It points out to what a short story does really, really, really well.
0: And what is that thing
1: that you think the short story does that a novel doesn't do? Well, again, when we're talking about a form so diverse, anything I say, you can pull a novel or a short story does the opposite. I guess I can only go from what I've read. So I apologize for people who are better read for me and differently read. You're going to have a way better definition. But from what I have read, my limited reading around both the short story and the novel— I always say this, when you read a novel, you know the world of this novel will not end till the last page. It is a consolation for you to hold that book and watch the pages diminish. In real life, the hourglass doesn't move like that. In real life, your life can be snuffed with a person that you love the most, or the world that you inhabit can end without any warning. What a short story does is it more realistically mirrors what it means to live in the real, where sometimes we feel our lives are divided by chapters, where we remember a person that we used to love and at that moment they were everything and now they're completely gone from us. We don't know anything about it. You remember a town where you went to college and while you were living in college, it meant everything to you and now it's so far away, you haven't thought about it in forever. And a short story, with In a short story collection, I feel like mirrors the internal sort of succession of worlds that many of us have within ourselves. And that I think that you can't do it the same way in a novel. I just think that the short story has a lot more punch for what it means to live in a world where many of our choices are final.
0: When you say it that way, it makes it seem obvious that that has to be the form for This is How You Loser a character who isn't mature enough to hold on to the people that they want to stay in a relationship with. This this sort of episodic, sudden snuffing out of relationships is, hap- is, is really brought forth by the form.
1: And he can love, Junior loves these girls, even if he doesn't admit it to himself at the time very, very deeply. He's just incapable of withstanding that intimacy. He runs from it. And so I agree with you. I always thought that each of these were a woman world in junior's mind and you know him looking back we understand that this book he's looking back and he's looking back at each of these lives and i think i think he's haunted haunted profoundly by his poor decisions but also by how at the moment when he was in love that was the whole world where does that world go
0: can you share a little bit, Juno, in the last uh, little bit about what you're working
1: on now? Sure. I'm trying to write. Uh, again, I'm I'm going to go for the big and the ridiculous now. Um, you know, the people who are like can't wait for the book, the kind of snotty critics who are just like diminishing and just attack, kind of just being jerks about the short story collection. Well, okay, I'm writing a novel, but this time I'm writing a novel about a giant monster invasion of the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Um, some horrible disease creates giant monsters and these people start eating the whole world and uh it's sort of like a some kind of apocalyptic cannibal nightmare it's it's kind of a it feels kind of like a. Uh, I, I always say this to my friends it feels like a homecoming it feels like something that's going to be if it works incredibly stupid and incredibly fun
0: a- and you, like some other writers who have crossover appeal, like China Mieville, for instance, are a big advocate of, of genre fiction and and the lack of respect it's getting in the world.
1: Well, you know, in China Mayville, you know, a colossal talent, important writer. What I love about Mayville is that beyond his genius, right, and his stupendous imaginative powers, what I love about him is that he's arguing for the value of the genre within the genre. What's, I think, problematic is with those of us, for example, who have literary credentials where we're arguing for uh, a, an area of practice where we have an enormous amount of privilege vis-a-vis it. In other words, like someone like me, it's different for me to be sitting around talking about how awesome genre is because I live half my life in the respected world of literary fiction, more than half my life. For someone like Mayville, I think it's, very, it's a very important internal argument that I think is it has an enormous amount of merit and I agree I think that genre not only genre that's practiced by those of us who have that kind of great passport of literary fiction uh, but genre that's practiced by people who only write genre is as important as anything that a Colson Whitehead anything that um, you know a uh, Anne Tyler anything that anyone has written you know, who comes from a mainstream fiction? I, I just, I, it's infuriating. And I share Mayville's sort of astonishment of the way this incredibly wonderful, important work is kind of just marginalized.
0: Well, let me put you on the spot before we go today. And if you had to reach back in, into genre fiction, somebody who isn't a crossover talent, that you'd say, this person really, you know, this would be one of the first people that comes to mind that I would say, this would be a, a place to start.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's no question. You can just go right to the top of the game. A writer who I think um, in some ways is representative of what genre does best and why it is so important. You need to read everything you can by Octavia Butler. Read uh, her novel Dawn, which is collected in now a, a sort of anthology called Lilith's Brood. You need to read her short stories. She wrote a book of short stories called The Blood Child, which is probably the best short story anthology I've ever read yeah you need to read her parable the sowers you need to read her incredible novel of time travel where a black woman gets transported back to a plantation yikes really great novel called kindred you need to read anything by samuel r delaney another colossus someone who i think is just so extraordinary he has his experimental labyrinth of a novel um dahlgren you need to read william gibson whether we're reading his sort of i think just unimaginably prescient and beautiful new romancer or his most recent magnus opus magnum opus william gibson's pattern recognition i mean it's i can't imagine you would understand america without someone like william gibson without someone like octavia butler it was great having on on between the covers today juno bro thank you so much for having me have a good day and it's sunny we're talking today with juno diaz about
0: his new short story collection this is how you lose her this has been Between the Covers. I'm David and your host.